Welcome to uh, another episode of The Grass is Greener. I'm your host, Paul Green. And today we're speaking with Arvin Brown, who is a director who has, his career has spanned um, many, many, many decades. Arvin was born in 1940, which makes him 83. He lives in Los Angeles. And I first met Arvin actually in a casting room for NCIS, which he's directed many, many, many episodes of it. But um, Arvin got his start at the Long Wharf Theater and a little bit before that um, as well through Harvard and Yale and um, really interesting journey into theater and then eventually film. He, Long Wharf is a theater in Connecticut that he produced more than 200 plays, uh, 70 of which he just he produced and he staged himself. Uh, some of those were his very first one was a Noel Coward hay, hay fever. And then he, uh, some of his other productions that were well-known were works from Arthur Miller, The Crucible, View from the Bridge, Eugene O'Neill, A Touch of a Poet, um, Requiem for a Heavyweight, The National Heath, uh, The National Health, 1974, uh, Wilderness, 1975, Watch on the Rhine, 1980, Privates on Paradise, American Buffalo with Al Pacino, 1983, Open Admissions, he actually directed um, Meryl Streep in one of her first ever plays. It's so cool. We actually talked about that in this episode. Uh, it goes to Porgy and Bess at the Metropolitan Opera. He's won numerous Tonys. Uh, once he got into television, which we didn't really get into in this episode yet, we're just sort of, this is part one, but he's uh, worked heavily on NCIS, uh, Leverage, Lie to Me, The Practice, L.A. McBeal, Crossing Jordan, Kevin Hill, Everwood, The Closer, Picket Fences, Party of Five, Chicago Hope, Dawson's Creek, Judging Amy, Private Practice, and Shark, plus many, 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 many others. He worked with Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore. Um, one, two, three, four, five Tonys, it looks like, at least. Four Tonys? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Arvin and I sat down. He's my neighbor and friend, and I wanted just to get some of his stories uh, about film. Uh, and, and acting in general, the casting process and some of his journey. Uh, it's really it's just a special guy, so fun to talk to. I really hope you enjoy this episode. It's different from most of mine. It's short, I think it's less than an hour. Um, we cover some really interesting moments, uh, very iconic moments, and I can't wait to sit down and talk with him again. But for now, please enjoy my conversation with Arvin Brown. Oh, and if you could, please check out the sponsors in the show notes. And if you go ahead and use them, please use my code. It helps with this podcast and other things. All right? Cool. See you on the other side. It looks like I'm higher than you in the, in the camera. It looks like I'm up here. And you're like relaxed. <laughs> well, you are, a, like ta- you are like- a taller person. <laughs> Just a little bit. Well, um, thank you for, for doing this. I wanted to talk with you. I mean, we always talk, but I've always, some of the stories that you tell and some of the history that, that you have in this business and from Long Wharf and even before in the sixties, I found a, like, I think I wanted to start with you because some of my audience are follow actors and some, uh, and some follow directors and like a lot of the people that follow some of my pages are other actors and or directors and you know we have our own personal 
connection from working together and how we work together and then we've got gotten together for dinners and over what has it been since NCIS probably 12 years right yeah 12 something like that it's a it's, it's probably just about that yeah I think so yeah I'm gonna take these out because I think these are gonna mess up these are my retainers so I'm just gonna take them out because I, I can tell uh, I'm I'm talking a bit funny uh, I don't I just got retainers. Um, what are they for? Straightening my teeth. Your teeth are your teeth not straight? The the a lot of them are starting to crowd a little bit. And then there's one here that's pushed back, but most this one's pushed in, but mostly it's my bite. My bite wasn't on the back part. Oh. The bite was on like the front and it was really not good. Oh wow. Like if I if I were if a piano ever fell in my head <laughs> my teeth would take it the front of it the wrong teeth like the front teeth yeah and so and then yeah so it's just it's just to kind of make the bite better yeah but yeah man so i um i don't know from the very first time i saw you and met you i've 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 always had this kind of curiosity about your stories and the way that you work and 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 really loved working with you because it's whenever there's an actor's director it's such a big difference it's such a treat to have somebody who speaks to you like like a human being not not like a product <laughs> it's a big, yeah it's a, yeah it's a big difference and so you know um we met in a casting room we did the very first time yeah um and i was reading for rennie grant remy grant rennie or rennie one of those remy uh who and it's funny so many people from around the world send me pictures like from their screen of that show where my character was was trying to frame Michael Weatherly's character. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And in the audition... And you were sort of a doppelganger, which is... <laughs> now it's a big thing, you know? It's true. Yeah. Right? Now yeah. Now, yeah. And I remember... I'll never forget the casting moment, like the casting room, because I brought my son, who was six or seven at the time. I, I, yeah, I think... Yeah. Yeah, I think he was maybe six. Yeah. And I had asked a stranger, like another actor mom, to watch him while I went in. And in the middle of my interrogation with you guys, he walks in the room, right? Like, and right. interrupts the audition. And I just remember kind of, I remember taking him out and then coming right back into the scene and then going in the car and being like, I think I even called my agent. I was like, I don't think that one went very well because my son interrupted the audition. I think I forgot some lines around that time and then they ended up getting booked for it. You know, a funny irony about that, though, is that if anything, it really enhanced the audi your audition because you handled it with such a plum. I mean, you, I mean, whatever you were feeling inside. Yeah. You walked out of the room, you, you know, you dealt with them, you walked back in, you look completely unflustered mm. and uh, and had a kind of stillness mm. about you. That's actually one of the things I often look look for in 
in actors, you know. I've always distrusted the audition process to such an extent because... <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, I think they're... I think auditions are so difficult. I mean, yeah. on, bo- on both sides, really. Yeah. Um, and very often, it's not. I'm not looking in an audition for something that comes out exactly as how I imagine the character, as much as I am to get a sense of the person. Right. Um, because I always feel that the character will come out of what we do together. Yeah. Um, in the process. Yeah. Even as limited as television time is, you know. Right. I mean, working on set with you, I never felt rushed like you. I mean, you were, you had done so many years of NCAS by the time we worked together. Yeah. That, it, but it just, you, there was this pace about it that didn't feel rushed we felt like we had time and you gave us time and you you spoke to us in a way where it felt like a collaboration like is that is that your pro has that have you changed much as a director over these years because i wanted to find out like when your very first directing experience was and then how many years to the last time you were on set well i'll give you a quick example the first this is back, goes back to my theater career, but the first play I ever directed was Long Day's Journey in Tonight, which is like four hours long. <laughs> Your first. And it was my first one. And I was 25 years old. And I was so panicked. <laughs> and I, you know, they, I, they gave me a white set, you know, the, the model for the set. Uh, which is, you know, you get a white model, it's not been painted because there's no point, it's not about that, it's just about geographical location and stuff. So I had the model and I put it on the table and then I cut out little characters, little people. Um, There are only five people in the play and four main people. So I cut out those little characters and I went through the entire play and I moved them around the set and thinking that that was going to be the blocking, you know. And then I got into the first rehearsal yeah. and I, had, I was working with a really great American actress named Mildred Dunnick. And Mildred Dunnick was the original Linda Lohman in Death of a Salesman. Okay. And she was the original Big Mama and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Okay. I mean, this was, I mean, she was a great, great actress. Is this in the 60s? This is the late 60s. 60s. Yeah, late 60s. And and she also was, had done a million films, you know. And uh, I said to her, okay, so um, Millie, for that speech, I thought it would be great if you were on the stairs. And she said, why? And I thought, I don't know why. I thought, <laughs> I thought it would just look nice. Right, 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 right. You know? Right, right. And then I realized that all that planning I had done mm. 
was completely bullshit. Right. That none of it was going to work. Huh. And I called lunch. And I knew in that lunch period that either I was going to make this work or this was not going to be my profession. And um, I threw out everything that I planned. Yeah. The actors came back in and I just started to work out of mm -hmm. instinct. Um, and, I, and find out, as we talked about the scenes and the characters, what the actors' impulses were for movement. Right. Yeah, and like and, why they're moving, like what's motivating them to go from yeah, here to there. And, exactly. How old were you at that point? 25. You were 25 in university or after? Oh no, this was after college. Uh, you know, I graduated uh, university and then I went to England and that's where I got into the theater. And I spent a year in England loosely affiliated with both a university and a and a theater, uh, the Bristol Vic. Okay. And, um, and that's where I fell into directing, but I directed a little one-act play, uh, and I had two really terrific actresses. It was a two-hander. And I know maybe I've sort of romanticized that as time <laughs> has gone on, but... I honestly think that like about an hour into rehearsal for that little one act, I thought, this is what I'm meant to do with my life. Mm. And, uh, and so when I got to that point on Long Day's Journey, and I thought, I, if this is really going to be my life, I've got to find out mm. if I can really do this, right. you know. So I tossed out everything went back to work and, and listened to what the actors were saying yeah. instead of trying to impose some concept on them. Wow. Um, and it was a great success. I mean, my first production was, was a great success. And so, where, where was your first production? At Long Wharf. Oh, so you, okay, but you started with Long Wharf, right? Wasn't it like, wasn't there a kids' theater thing before that? Right, I, I was the director of the children's theater, and there, there was an apprentice group. Okay. And, uh, and then they had promised me one play, the, the two guys who founded the theater, John Jory, who later on became the artistic director of the Actors' Theater of Louisville okay. in Kentucky, Okay. And a man named Harlan Kleiman. They were the two guys who built the theater. And, and they had been watching my work in class, and so they offered me the directorship of the children's theater and the apprenticeship and the apprentice class. And then they said, we'll give you one production on the main stage um, during the season. And then they sort of forgot about it. And I kind of... Reminded them. Conveniently reminded them. <laughs> yeah. And so they they offered me the last play, because I think they were exhausted by then. <laughs> uh, and it was Long Day's Journey in Tonight. Wow. And, and uh, the reason I had Mildred Dunnick, I mean, up to that point, the theater had used actors who were good actors, but completely 
not big names. Mm -hmm. um, they were mostly from um, the uh, Cleveland Playhouse. Okay. And because that's where John Jory had been, was in the right. Cleveland Playhouse. So the fact that we had Mildred Dunnick came because all the regular actors in the company were too tired to try to do Long Day's Journey in a Night. They didn't want to tackle it. Because wow. it's a mountain. I mean, it's gigantic. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and so we got a letter from Mildred Dunnick. And the th keep in mind, the theater had just opened. school answering machine where they're going to talk and leave the message <laughs> no it's it should i don't use that phone it's, i don't know but i keep i keep meaning to take it out and i haven't done it <laughs> it's got that old old school ring yeah um anyway we got a letter from mildred dunnick and she said that she had been cast to play mary tyrone the main part uh, main woman's part uh, for the original production when it was done on Broadway and at the last minute they hired Frederick March who was a great American actor to play the father and he insisted contractually that his wife Florence Eldridge play the mother in the, in the play and so Dunnick lost the role and it was the greatest professional disappointment of her life. Wow. She went up on a roof of, on the roof of her house for like four days <laughs> in in misery. You know? Wow. And so she was asked she was asking if we'd consider her for the part. And I thought, consider her, my God, you know, I mean, here I was directing my first play and here she was, you know. Mm. Funny thing is. I worked so hard after that first disastrous rehearsal day to keep everybody from knowing that I had never directed a play, a full-length <laughs> full play. Wow. And after, you know, after all the years of experience after that, I thought, I never fooled anybody. I no. couldn't have fooled anybody. Right. But I was asked to give a big award to Mildred Dunning to present it to her and in front of a big audience. And I got, I got up in front of the audience and told the story that I just told you. And um, I said, and I'm absolutely sure, of course, that I never fooled <laughs> Millie Dunning. But she got up to get the, take the award and she looked shaken. <laughs> and she claimed that she had not known that. That that was your first play? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? That's great. Yeah. That's uh, and was there a big difference working with kids and then working with like, like do you prefer, was it, was it, in, was it enjoyable to work with, with the kids theater? Like, is that, is there a major difference between kids and adults when you're in, in live theater like that? Yeah, there are a lot of big differences. Um, first of all, kids are completely, um, without inhibition yeah so um i love the fact that you've got these incredible reactions all during the play you know 
Yeah. Um, and you knew exactly what was working and what wasn't working. The downside of children's theater is that the material, for the most part, is just not there. It's not very good. Right. You know, people write down to kids. They don't, very few people writing for kids have a real understanding of what kids are like, you know? Right. That'd be why something like Billy Elliot or some, a play like that would be, uh, but he's an older kid. It's not like a young kid. Right. Right. I didn't realize that the guy who plays, uh, who played the original Billy Elliot is, what's his name? Spider-Man now. The, the young, um, what's his name? Do you know who, did you ever see the original Billy Elliot in, in, in the UK? In yeah, you know who, I know who it is. It's, um, oh man. Yeah, he's dating, he's dating Zendaya. He's dating that, that young girl from, uh, Euphoria, Zendaya. Um, he's also in the Avengers, obviously, too, that guy. He's actually a very good actor. Oh yeah, but he was young Billy Elliot, but he was a pretty yeah. young, uh, kid, uh, you know, I think I. Th I uh, he also he had a, a big relate long relationship with uh, the girl from um, a TV series that I did. Ra uh, Rach, what's her name? <laughs> this is you know I'm so bad with names. Now. <laughs> it's terrible. Evan Evan Rachel. Oh Wood. Oh really? Is that it? Is yeah. that her name? Yeah, yeah, Evan, ever, yeah, Rachel, no, Evan Rachel Wood or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it is her, yeah. Um, but the guy I'm thinking of um, is, what's his name? You'll, you'll reckon, and we might be talking about a different, different, different person here. Hang on. Actor. He, uh, <laughs> Tom Holland. Oh, you're talking about Tom Holland. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's wonderful. He had done the no, uh, yeah. Billy then Owen I was talking about a different yeah, guy. Yeah, Tom Holland. But see, that one was written for kids, but it was pretty smart, and uh, I think Matilda had a pretty smart thing. But 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 those also though. Well, Matilda maybe a little more than Billy Elliot, but Billy Elliot's really for an older audience. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And so you were born in the East Coast. You were born no, 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 I was born here. Where? I'm uh, in Los Angeles. I didn't know that. Where uh, did you end up in Connecticut? In well, I went, I went to, uh, I went up north to school, to college. Where? To Stanford. Uh huh. For for directing or for like no, film? No, no, no. I had nothing to do with the theater. I was really in literature. I expected to be a. I wanted to be a writer. So I took literature I, courses. I, I majored in American literature. And then I got this fellowship to go to England. So I went to the University of Bristol. And that was where I just accidentally, just by chance, got that one you know experience with directing. And then I came back because I came back to America because I had a fellowship at Harvard and to go on with English literature. And I, even though I felt in my heart that I'd found what I wanted to do with my life, you know, it was a fully paid scholarship to Harvard. To Harvard how, did, how did that happen? 
the scholarship? To, to, yeah. How did you, where were you right before you got the scholarship to Harvard? Well, I was, these all happened when I was graduating Stanford. Okay. Because I had a very good record and stuff. And so the fact the uh, administration selects certain students to really give a big push wow. to try to have them get various, like I had a Fulbright to England and I had a scholarship called a Woodrow Wilson to Harvard. Uh, and those put credit back on the university, you know, that if their students get those kind of fellowships, so. I've known you this long, and how did I not know about the, how about the, the Woodrow Wilson or the, or the, or Harvard? You're like, yeah, he's very humble. I mean, most people would lead with that. Hey, hi, I went to Harvard, and uh, after Stanford, of course, on a full scholarship, and then I went to England, and I directed my first play. And then ended up at Yale. <laughs> you did? Yeah. Oh, come on. Because that was the, that was when I, when, you know, I realized halfway through the year at Harvard. I hated Harvard. Oh. And, Why? But that, Why? But, the, but that wasn't entirely Harvard's fault. Part of it was, <laughs> part of it was that I had found what I wanted to do. Yeah. And, uh, and the good thing about the year at Harvard was I disliked everything about that I felt there so much mm. that it made everything concrete in terms of my realizing I was going to be a director. I had to, to be a director. Wow. Um, I vaguely remember you telling me a little bit now about the feeling at Harvard, but I had forgotten that it was Harvard. And how did the Yale thing, how did you get to Yale? Well, I, I knew I was going to, you know, Harvard was... Obviously, it was, I was supposedly going for a PhD, but Harvard has an odd system because usually what you do at most universities is you get an MFA first by writing a thesis, a master's degree, and then you go on from there to a PhD. But at Harvard, you don't write a thesis, you just take a battery of exams. And if you pass those, you get a master's, and then you can go on to work for a PhD. And, and I knew I wasn't going to go for a PhD, but I was stubborn, and I thought, I'm going to pass the tests anyway, so I can show them that I could have gone on for a PhD. <laughs> it was my decision. To make yourself miserable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I I, uh, <laughs> I went to talk to the head of my English department. I'll never forget this. And uh, I told him I was not only leaving, but I was going to the Yale Drama School. I was leaving Harvard to go to Yale, which he was not, you know, happy about. And then he said, you realize that you're going to have to spend the rest of your life around theater people. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he said. Yeah. Did he say it with a dry, with the, like a dry face? Oh, totally. I mean, he was dead serious. And I thought to myself, the craziest people that I've ever encountered in my life so far were this year at Harvard. All the academics. Right. You know, because right. they were frustrated and unhappy and often. Yeah, 
and in looking when you look down the nose at everyone else too that's a lonely place sometimes sure or at least a miserable place for some people yeah yeah who else was at harvard around that time that's like that people would know is there anyone that was there at the time that 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 others uh, that, that have really made a name for themselves in either literature or in at yale with a with a drama whoa because uh, this is still late 60s or, or mid 60s this would have been mid 60s okay yeah mid 60s gosh i haven't thought back i mean i i there were a lot of people from harvard that i met but most of them were academics that yeah. you wouldn't they're not like they haven't become like uh pulitzer prize winners or something or well maybe i'll tell you one person who was there that i got, got friendly with actually but he was older than me i mean he was he was in another year but eric siegel okay. who wrote love story and uh -huh. uh, you know at yale no this was at harvard oh wow okay. yeah Love ne means never having to say you're sorry. Uh-huh. He wrote that? Yeah. Wow. But I mean, most of the people I knew were, as I say, are people that yeah. necessarily went into the entertainment business. Right. When I got to the drama school, that was different. I mean, because, you know, my whole first contact with, uh, when I cast Meryl Streep in uh, her first Broadway, show you did yeah okay uh what was that it was a uh, two one-act plays one by tennessee williams and one by arthur miller and it was uh the idea was just to put these two one-act plays together in the same night the same night with the same actor same cast yeah going and doing both plays oh that's cool it was great and it Meryl, was great and was it one of Meryl's earlier jobs then it was one of her first very first jobs in in New York come on and she got a Tony nomination come on what was that like directing her it's like how young was she she was out of she was right out of school so she 20 so yeah 19 oh. no she was I think she was about 20 or 21 when you were directing her were you like this woman has it oh yeah there was no question i mean there i'll never forget we uh, some of the other actors i mean there were some very well-known actors in the cast uh including john lithgow mm -hmm. and uh i don't know an actor you may not have heard of because he's been gone for quite a while named tony musante no nope. used to be a really well-known actor but anyway um, we were having a conversation about the differences between film acting and theater acting. Uh -huh. And Merrill hadn't done a movie yet. But it wasn't, a, we all knew that she, it was just a matter of when it was going to happen. Mm. And she knew. Mm. And she, she was so not arrogant, but she carried with her a sense of who she was and what was going to happen to her. Yeah. And it all did. I mean, you, you just, I mean, it was a talent that was so mm -hmm. extraordinary. 
Um, I mean, a story, I, I probably told you this story, but maybe it's worth telling again that, um, you know, when she came in to read, she read for both plays, and the Tennessee Williams play, she was, the part was a sort of blousy, redneck woman, heavy set woman who was like not very bright uh, and sort of, you know, with earthy and sensuous, but uh, anyway, she, she read and she read brilliantly, you know. And then the next play was a hard-talking New York uh, sales girl and in Arthur Miller's play. Mm. Anyway, she got the role without question. But as I started rehearsals for uh, the Tennessee Williams, you know, suddenly I'm looking at her and, you know, she was slim and beautiful and blonde. And I thought, have I made a mistake? I mean, right. this is crazy that she would play this, you know. Anyway, she, she also had some concern and she said, she came, we had a conversation and she said, um, let me try something for tomorrow's rehearsal. And if, if we still feel it's not gonna work, then I think we should just acknowledge that, you know, and I mean, she was so self-confident wow. in a really good way. Next day, I usually hate these kind of stories because I, be <laughs> I believe that actors work, should always work from the inside. Uh -huh. But she came in and she had bought an old sloppy house dress and she had done some padding on herself, had gotten fake boobs and a uh, whole kind of, you know, big ass padding wow. and she was the woman. I mean, it was unbelievable. Wow. And at the end of the rehearsal, we went out to dinner and, and she said, I think it's gonna be okay. <laughs> and I said, yep. How cool and, is that? And the here's an amazing thing. When, when we did the, sh when the shows opened in New York, uh, when I would come back and see the shows, I'd hear this rustling in the audience when the second play started. The first play was the Tennessee Williams, as I was describing. Mm -hmm. Then there was an, we had an intermission and they came back in. Mm -hmm. And the first person on stage in, the, in Arthur's play was Merrill, as this dark-haired, slim, fast-talking, you know, shop girl. And... Uh, with a thick New York accent, and that, and there would be this rustling, and and I said to the stage manager, "What's going on? What is all that that sound?" And he said, "They're all flipping their programs to try to figure out if it's the same girl." Nobody could believe that it was no the same girl. Well, that's funny. You could hear like yeah, everyone like, "What is going on?" Yeah, yeah. Wow, and nobody had known about her yet at that point. Yeah, she was completely unknown.
Was you, when you discovered your wife, did you cast her in a play as well? Was this around that time or was it before that? Uh, by the time I worked with Meryl, we were together. But um, when I was doing Long Day's Journey, that story I was telling you, we were not yet together. Okay. I saw my I saw Joyce uh, the first time on stage. She was in New York. She had was doing a play off Broadway, a Greek play called The Trojan Women. And she was brilliant and she had won all the awards that year. Uh, and I went to see a matinee. And I'm not usually a big fan of Greek drama because so much <laughs> happens off stage and messengers come in and report. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. But, in, with but in this play, okay. in Trojan Women, yeah. one of the most dramatic scenes that ever happens in a Greek play happens with the character with the character Joyce was playing called Andromache. And uh, it's the Trojan War and the opposing forces come in and they rip Andromache's child away from her arms because the child would be the next king. So they are gonna destroy him and they throw him from the parapet uh, and kill him. So this is a very, very dramatic mm. scene and I went to see it on the Saturday matinee and I'm watching this scene and it's, and Joyce is playing Andromache and everyone around me, all these women around me are sobbing, and which is something, again, you rarely see in a Greek drama. Mm. You don't see the audience, because there's an austerity about them. You don't see the audience visibly moved, but in this instance, they were. And I thought she was phenomenal. Um, and, uh, and then the second job I ever got, um, actually, the first paying job I ever got as a director, right after that first production of, of uh, Long Day's Journey, I was asked to come to Williamstown Summer Theater and direct a play called Lion in Winter. And Joyce was gonna be the star and she, she was also gonna be a week late to rehearsals, and it was only a two-week rehearsal period. <laughs> and I, and I, was, I thought, she's gonna be this diva, yeah. you know, and, and I, this is only my second play, and I, <laughs> and I thought, she's gonna eat me alive, you right. know. And then she showed up at rehearsal, totally cool, knew the, knew the script, you know, inside out, and mm. was lovely to work with, and, and was great in the role. And, uh, and so when I became artistic director, which was the following season, um, I, I asked her to come and join the company, and she agreed to join the company and we did a couple of plays together and then we were getting involved without even quite knowing where it was gonna go. Um, 
And then she came out, I released her from her contract because she got the offer from Gordon Davidson to come out to Los Angeles and open the Mark Taper Forum, starring in their first production, okay. which was a play called The Devils. Okay. And she co-starred with Frank Langella okay. in that. And I kept, I flew out to watch it to, to, to you know see a few rehearsals and then I flew out for the opening night Wow! and uh, and then we really were became a thing uh-huh and how many plays did you direct her at? Uh, you know we never actually had an accurate count but it, <laughs> I think it was probably Maybe 50, you know. Wow, and she won several Tonys from that, or in that time, or other? No, she won the awards. She never got a Tony because she, a lot of her awards came from her off-Broadway okay. appearances. So those are different awards. Those okay. are like an OB and a, she got something called the Clarence Derwin Award, which is a major okay. award for new talent, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but we did a lot of Broadway shows together, yeah. uh, as well as you know the shows at Long Wharf. Oh, really? Which brought which Broadway shows did you guys do? Uh, we did a let's see, we did a production of Arthur Miller's play All My Sons. Okay. We did a production of Lillian Hellman's play Watch on the Rhine, which was a, a famous old play that wow. hadn't been revived. We did, um, Joyce did a production called The Shadow Box okay. without me. I didn't direct that. Okay. Uh, we did a play called Solitaire, Double Solitaire, which was by a playwright named Robert Anderson. Mm. We did about, we did about 10 plays together on Broadway. Wow. You would think that would be challenging to you know, work, like, was it, was there challenges to having, like, to continue working together and be in a romantic relationship and then be married? Like, was there, or for you guys, was it just easy? Um, you know, it was a little bit of both, I think. Uh, uh -huh. You said she was tal very talented, right? Oh, she was great. On one level, it was easy because we knew each other so well. Uh-huh. And I knew, uh, you know, I knew what was real and what, when she was at her best, and she knew the same of me. So that was the positive part of it. I think sometimes the negative part came from the fact that I was an art, the art director of the theater as well as um, the director of a play. And so when she worked on the shows that we did together, she had to work doubly hard to make the cast feel that she was just one of them, you know, and not getting any special consideration or, oh, you know, so that was difficult. And then as she got older, um, it was hard because I had to be very careful about how I cast her to make sure that it didn't look like nepotism. Mm. You know, I, and I mean, when she first came, when I brought her to Long Wharf, 
-hmm. when I became artistic director, she was so much more well-known than I was that it wasn't an issue. I mean, it was like she was, we were the lucky ones yeah. that she was coming to work with us. Yeah. It was a major deal. But as time went on and my career blossomed and the theater became more and more famous, it was more difficult because she sacrificed a lot in her career. Mm -hmm. She was very anxious to have a home mm. and she loved acting, but she wasn't driven. She was not super ambitious. Right, right. And she, she had had a very bad first marriage ah. where she had been the wage earner all through the first marriage. It became clear that that wasn't going to be the case with us. Um, and that she could relax from that point of view. And uh, so she was turning down loads of offers in the first, say, 10 years of our marriage. Uh, and I never encouraged that, you know. I mean, I was the lucky recipient because we had a great home and she was a phenomenal cook and you know, I mean, it was great. It, it meant we had a much more normal life than we would have had if she'd said yes to all those said yes to all those offers. Mm. But you know, as an actor, you pay a price for that. Yeah, yeah. And finally, when I think she would have enjoyed having more choices, they weren't there so much anymore. Right. And then the burden was on, on me right. in terms of casting. Okay. You know, so that I could, that she could work enough so that I knew that she was fulfilled at the same time that I wasn't casting her incorrectly and mm -hmm. wearing out her welcome with the audience. That was a right. factor. Yeah. And why Connecticut? Like why? Why did that happen there in, what town was it? New Haven. New Haven. Why, why there and not, like, why were you not connected to a theater more in New York City? Like, why would it be, it's not that far away, right? It's like, no, it's only, uh, 40 minutes or something. No, it's more than that, but it's only, uh, it's about an hour, about an hour, I guess, okay. an hour and 15 maybe. Okay. Brilliant. Well, that, first of all, it was just, I mean, the guys who built the theater, I, that was where they wanted to build it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, I wasn't part of that. This mic is going out for some reason. I wasn't part of that decision. Um, but in a way, one of the changes that I made when I became artistic director, having had the experience with Dunnick and with, Frank Langella is that I thought, I mean, there were a lot of famous actors who were living in Connecticut right. and working in New York. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm going to use that. I'm going to get all these actors to think of Long Wharf as their home theater. Nice. And they did. Uh, wow. So I started bringing all these great actors to the Long Wharf. And uh, 
you know, over time and over the choice of plays and stuff, Long Wharf became really an internationally famous theater. Yeah. And how did your transition out of like, like right after you were, after you were finished at Long Wharf, how did you know that you were finished and what was the next little step? What was the next move away from there? Well, I was coming up on my 30th anniversary of running the theater. And I'd started working in a few television shows. I'd always been, I'd always been curious about the camera and wanting to work with the camera. And uh, it always been in my mind that maybe at some point I would be able to do movies as well as uh, theater. But I, I was so busy in the theater that I never really had time to pursue it, you know. But finally, I, I had I'd come out to L.A. a couple of times before I made the decision to leave Long Wharf. And I found that I was, you know, I made the transition. I was getting offers to direct television. And I found that I really enjoyed it. And I finally, before I made the decision to leave, I went to my agent, and and also I had a manager at that point out here, and I said, I'm really thinking of making a big change in my life and doing this full time. How do you feel about that? You're going to be, you know, you're going to be obligated to try to get me a full season's work. They said, we would be thrilled if you came out here we just know that well this would be fantastic i mean we'll mm. we'll get you more work than you can handle and so i said okay well <laughs> we'll take the chance and that so i gave the theater notice and then of course what i couldn't have predicted was that joyce would pass away that year so all you guys the, were together 25 years 28 years well, we were married for 30, we were together for 33 years. And so the year that you were, were resigning, given your notice there, she passed away. Yeah. So at that point, I had no ties left to Connecticut there. I'd given up the theater. She was gone. I knew that there was no way I could recapture the life that we had, you know, and and I, I thought I've got to go with a new life. I've got to create a whole new, yeah, new life. You guys had a really special love for each other, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was so grateful that I had a new life to go to, and yeah. thank and God, a new adventure, like a whole new, new adventure. adventure. Yeah. What was your first job out here? Well, the first job was before she. She passed. I mean, that was, you know, before I made the big decision. The first TV series I did was called Picket Fences, and it was a David Kelly show. Oh. What year was that? Like, 90? Or... Yeah, it would have been, yes. It would have been around 94, probably. Okay. David Kelly, was, was that one of his first... Series too. Yeah. Yep. 
I didn't know he did that. That's yeah. Wow. And then uh, how'd you get that job? Um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, whenever I was in LA, I'd always have loads of meetings with producers and stuff, studio people, and they'd always be very flattering, and they all knew my theater reputation and stuff. But they, and they would say, oh, we'd love to work with you, bring us something. And of course, I never did. I, got, I would go back east and get caught up in a lot of theater projects and right. not bring them anything. Um, so this one time, I walked into this, an office of a guy named Michael Pressman, uh -huh. who was running uh, Picket Fences, and uh, he knew my work, and he's just basically said, I think you'd be great, when can you start, you know? And gave me an episode. Is this David's uh, producing partner, Michael? Is this, say is, again? Is this David Kelly's producing partner, Michael? Yeah. No. Okay, because uh, he, he still works with one other guy now, I think his name is Michael too. Well, Michael Pressman is certainly a director who's worked with David a lot. Oh, okay, but it wasn't not. It's not my. It's not David's producing partner. No. Okay. No. Um, at least I don't think so. Maybe Michael. Michael's had produ producing credits. Maybe. I wonder because David Kelly gave me one of my first jobs too. Yeah. Yeah. The the and you you directed an episode right after my episode. Oh, that's right. Of of wedding, bell, wedding bells. Of wedding bells. Yeah. yeah. And then he had me come in and read for that thing on uh, something for um, Boston Legal. Um, that that Spader, that James Spader, had already performed, and I had to do ten pages for him and his producing partner, who I think his name is Jeff. Is it Jeff? Maybe. Oh yeah, it was Jeff. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it was a wild. It was a wild experience to... Well, before we get into your TV, I think we should stop because it's two, and I don't want to push your other appointments just after two. Okay. Uh, and then we'll pick this up on the next one. Okay. Sort of like in chapters. Like, we'll stay... Like, we did that little bit, and, then, and before we move into... I'd like to slowly move us for if you're okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I'll tell you, I mean, I, I will, I'll know in advance and I won't schedule. Yeah, no, this was, so I was an hour late because from our original time had, had, you know, when you have a two year old, uh, <laughs> things are juggled a bit and our whole day changed. So I was like, Oh shoot, can we move it? I didn't know we, you had something, uh, that we were pushing against, but I love these old stories. And these and and I I think that I just want to make sure that that I uh, like you've told me so many cool stories and interesting little moments and it's I don't know if it's your, the way you tell the picture maybe because your literacy background but your literature background there's like a, it really paints the picture of this 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 I can actually see it when you're talking which is really really cool and I'm hoping that my the people that get to see this and listen will experience that, you know, that same feeling. There's like a, there's a nostalgia. And I have a question I want to ask you about that Martin Scorsese feels like that film is finished <laughs> right now because of, you know, all the Barbies and the, the Marvels and AI. And I, we won't talk about it on this one, but I want to ask, I want to get your opinion on that. What, you know, because you're obviously in his, 
in his era and I'm sure you know him and I'm just, I just want to hear your thoughts on the next one so when we or the one after I want to do like a series of these with you because it's just so cool it's so interesting because the, the people you've worked with too um, I really a lot of them I really look up to and have been mentors for me and I want to ask you who your mentors have been and who your sure. inspirations have been, but sure. we'll do that on the on the next one. So, what's your schedule like? How are you in the area? For, I'm in the for area. Long? We could even like do next Friday or something. Like we could kind of, if you want, it just depends a little bit on my our schedule there. But if you want, we can try to like schedule a week ahead and and try around this time at noon or something. Or... Well, let's do. It. I'll tell you what. Welcome back. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this conversation with Arvind. There's a video of this available on YouTube. Uh, there should be a link to that in the show notes as well as all the sponsors. So thank you for subscribing. Uh, and also thank you for reviewing, rating, all that fun stuff on iTunes. That really helps. If you could go do that for me, that would be incredible. Uh, leave a good review and some words there. That would be great. I hope you enjoyed this. This is, uh, like I said, if you're even if you're not an actor, but maybe if you just love good storytelling, this will be for you. Um, so thanks again. Please share if you know someone else that might enjoy this this kind of time capsule, this unique experience. And this is part one. I am hoping to get s several other ones with Arvin along the road. Um, until I see you, please be kind and gentle, tender and loving towards yourself and your thoughts on purpose. And please remember that your past does not define who you are. Uh, and um, we'll catch you on the next one of these real soon. All right, bye. I'm gonna follow On the New York streets It's getting cold now I'm only trying to help them see Empty souls and sun faces Staring back at me I walk by faith Not by sight I know my feelings Though you slay me I will trust you